Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I'm chatting to Nick and Alex Ravenhall. Both Nick and Alex work in the whisk industry and have recently completed some pretty impressive wild swims to raise money for charity. I'm keen to find out more and of course ask them about their favourite whiskies. Today I'm joined by Nick and Alex Ravenhall, otherwise known as the Whiskey Smugglers, who recently swam around Scottish islands, Jura and Isla, with bottles of whiskey strapped to their bodies to raise money for Sea Shepherd New Zealand. Hi guys, how are you? Hello, good thank you. Yeah, good thank you. Uh, So I think we need to kind of jump in, if you pardon the pun, and talk about um, your swim. So how was it? Do you want to start that one, bro? Yeah, cool. Well, the... the, um the Cove Reckon was a beautiful day, so that swim was really easy, I, I guess, for me. Um, and I, I can speak for Nick a, a little bit as well. The, the most recent swim where we swam um, from Brook Laddie to Bamore was really tough. Um, there was I had issues with my equipment, um, and then the, the rolling and fog and not being able to see the shore and losing the boat um, added a few other dimensions to the swim that I wasn't quite ready for. And and then the distance um, as well of almost 5K um, was really tough. But I'm not sure if you, you last time you were down at Lockendal and stood at Brook Laddie, but you can see Bamore on the other side. When we got in the water, Bamore just disappeared behind a bank of fog. And so, like, when you're just like a little head, like peeking out of the water and trying to swim, like you really want to see where you're going. And I mean, there was a bit there where I was, I was looking at my brother who just seemed to be swimming further and further away from me in the wrong direction. And then I was, then I was panicking because I thought maybe that's me swimming in the wrong direction. Then the boat buggered off and <laughs> oh, no. yeah, it was brutal. Um, so both times, did you have whiskey strapped to you or was that just once? No, every time. Every time. Every time. Yeah. Smuggled down uh, smuggled down the wetsuit. Oh right, okay. And and is that purely just for, you know, to add weight and make it a bit more challenging or what's what's the <laughs> <laughs> what's the reason? Um we well we 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 did the silly swim last year when we swam the Cory and the idea was you know, we we started ocean swimming and a lot of people were interested in our in our friendship group of us and thought we were crazy doing these swims. Um and then we we actually thought, well, we, we're training hard and we're doing these great swims. Why don't we try and raise some cash for something that we care about, which is ocean conservation? And Sea Shepherd New Zealand is obvious for us. And because we work in whiskey, we thought rather than donate money, maybe people would like to buy a whiskey that got smuggled across a whirlpool or over the channel uh, to France or across the lock. So, you know, we, the first time we did it, we smuggled some samples from uh, Bunnehaven, which were organised by Kirsch Whiskey in Germany and then also 
um, our mate Dez up at Signatory, and we spoke with them, sent them back. He blended them into a vatting of six casks and 2,000 bottles went out to Germany and were sold within five days. And we ended up giving a, a 10,000 pound donation to Sea Shepherd New Zealand. So, now I know I'm rushing through this, but that's why the whiskey's there. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, for, no. for me, it was more of a, an excuse just to get in the water. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure, I'll swim some whiskey across there as long as I get to go swimming. <laughs> so have you found that you've, uh, as you've started the, the wild sea swimming, that you've really, really enjoyed it? And obviously, if you, you've just done it for the swim, you must sort of find it very invigorating, almost like, addictive maybe because i know people who do well swimming they really get into it don't they yeah yeah 100 percent. I, th- I think um just being um kiwis and growing up in new zealand we're always so close to to the ocean and, and the beach and and being in the water was a, a big part of of our childhood so being a bit more landlocked in in london um sort of sort of gave, encouraged that that idea of being able to get out into the open water and be in the ocean again. So for, for me, yeah, it was 100%. The, the, the drive was just to get back out in the ocean and, and the elements um, where, where I'm most happiest. So, yeah. Yeah, because you're not going to start going wild swimming in the Thames, are you? Uh, <laughs> I don't know I, what you'd I find. I about training down at the London Royal Docks. So, um, yeah, it's still a bit of Thames water coming in and through the filtering <laughs> in. But, yeah, the, the Thames is definitely not as inviting as um, some of the swims up in Scotland that we've had. Uh, so you mentioned um, Sea Shepherd New Zealand. Um, you guys have founded Whiskey and Waves, um, which is an ocean awareness charity. Is it sort of similar aims to the the Sea Shepherd New Zealand charity about you know ocean um, like cleaning up the oceans and sort of putting awareness out there of what's what's currently in the ocean? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think what we're trying to do, and we we say this a lot, is just make change in a space that we know. Like Alex and I both work in whiskey. And, you know, you, you hear all the old stories like whiskey means the water of life and la, 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 la. And it's like, okay, great. Well, where, where does whiskey take accountability for water health and ocean health? And I think what we're trying to do is make whiskey fans or give whiskey fans a story which says, hey, you know, you, you can help things by, one, buying this bottle, but two, if you care so much about your drams, maybe thinking about what happens with our ocean and you know plastics and all the things which are confronting the world that we live in um, might help make a little bit of of consumer change. And so that's where you know I th- we, we've talked a lot about just getting people out into the water, helping people reconnect with the sea, um, taking people on these swims with us. That, and, and then and then having a dram and having that nice really sharing moment and having a laugh i think we can we can put in a message around having a care for the environment which isn't all doomsday it's all over if we don't fix this stuff it, it can just be part of our normal way of living if that makes sense that kind of sense of in maori we call it kaitiakitanga it just means means a sense of guardianship and taking care of things nice and so you said you take people with you on your swim. Has there been any sort of funny moments <laughs> or sort of, you know, challenging moments if you've got folk with you who might be a bit freaked out? Well, there's, there's been a few over. Yeah, oh, definitely. There was, there was one just recently this weekend where I was like, ah, oh, shit, I can't see Nick. I can't see the boats. I can't see the land. 
oh, well, what am I going to do right now? I might just sit um, for a bit and just get get a feel for the ocean again and feel the currents and then try and figure it out from there. But I was quite lucky in that moment that shortly after stopping, the, the boat came charging through the, the fog um, to come find me. So, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely been a lot of moments like that. Um, when we did English Channel, <laughs> The, the first swim, the first leg, because we're doing it in a team, and like we've been doing all this acclimatization swim, but there's nothing that prepares you for that first moment where you get in the water. And you're like, I know it's going to be cold, but how cold? And then your body almost goes into to shock, and your your breathing that you've been practicing for months on end just goes out the window, and you just have to start swimming to to get warm. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost, there's something strange and unusual that happens on almost every swim that we do just because the water in each place is so much different. We had, we had a good one with a, a, a lady I work with called Lucy who, um, you know, she, she sees swims down at Portobello in Edinburgh and we had one person pull out from the team at the last minute. So I messaged her, I was like, Lucy, do you want to come and do the Corey Brecken? And she's like, no way. And then she's like, okay, I'm up for it. And then a week before she sends me a message, says, is it okay if I, if I breaststroke over? I, I can't do freestyle. Um, and and we, we worked it out with the with the guide that if she swam over within 45 minutes, then, then she would be fine. And so we're swimming along and she's doing a cracking pace and, when we got back and she got back on the boat after and she's talking, she's like, yeah, Nick kept swimming off and like turbocharging in front and then would wait. I was like, Lucy, you don't understand that I was watching out for jellyfish for you because you couldn't see them. And she went, oh, is that why you were telling me to swim <laughs> to the right? And there was massive lions, mate. It must have been two metres in its tube that she's just swimming straight at. <laughs> and I was telling her, go left, go left, go left, try not to be panicky. And, you know, she's threading the needle between these, these you know, jellyfish, which, <laughs> which are, yeah, pretty big. But there's always, like Alex said, every swim throws up something something different and and you where there's a, there's always a freak out moment. Yeah, I can imagine. And and for anyone that doesn't know, can you tell us a bit about the quarry wrecking? Because it's quite looks like it'd be quite challenging. Yeah, I mean, the first time we tried to do it, they wouldn't let us in the water because there was uh, there was a wind speed. I think it was like eighteen knots or something like that. It wasn't an hour. It was gusting, and they had three meter swells through there. And they said we're not even going to take the boat in. And so we. Couldn't get there, and then the last, the two swims we've had, we've just been very lucky with the conditions. So, you know, a, as we've gone past it, um, the skipper says, "Oh, you can see the standing wave, and you you look down it, and there's just a wave which is not even breaking. It's that's the current just hanging there." And then when we come around to do the swim, one boat goes to the other side, one stays on the near side, and they both watch the wave drop and they watch the current drop. And then the far side boat goes, okay, now you're in your window. And so then it, it, it doesn't become challenging in terms of all the crazy whirlpool thought that you think, like it's just get to the other side. But, I mean, Al, the, the current in there is pretty pretty different, eh? Yeah, it's pretty pretty gnarly, like in terms of, like I've, I've surfed a lot and a lot all over the world. But um, 
for for something that looks really calm on the surface, there's a lot going on underneath. There's um, there's currents um, shifting from both ends of of that stretch of water, and you really feel that when you swim through. So, at, at one point, you can feel like your your legs are being stretched one way and your torso is going the complete opposite and that's just because the water underneath you is bubbling up and, and moving in different directions so it in terms of a technical swim yeah it's, it's pretty technical but also fun <laughs> um, and the, so the whiskey from your last swim on Isla is that available um, or has it all been kind of cat or, or what's happened to it basically so yeah, we we've we've got all of our whiskies will be coming out over the next three months. So um, we have a collaboration with Bimba down in London. We paired up with a English single malt whiskey to to do the Channel Swim, and they're going to release a single cask. Then for Corey, we're doing again another peated Bonnehaven with Signatory, um, and I, I think both of those will probably be ready in the next couple of months. And then Alex and I took over some liquid from some some liquid that was donated to us by an independent bottler, some Brook Laddie. He he donated us uh, some Brook Laddie and some Bamore. So when we when we <laughs> we sat on the beach at Bamore drinking the Bamore out of the bottle, we were just like putting putting the Brook Laddie back in and you know there'll be a little we're gonna do this one a bit different because it wasn't much liquid. So we'll do it as a one of one bottling and put it on on auction. And that's all to um, is is are they to raise money for um, Sea Shepherd or for for you guys, Whiskey and Waves? Um, Whiskey and uh, it will be for Sea Shepherd, and then next year we want to partner Whiskey and Waves with a Scottish Ocean charity. And the the, the boys down down home they they want to get one more boat, <laughs> so we said we would do do the best to help them. And then the next year. Um, everything will be with with the Scottish charity. Nice. So you both work in the whisky industry. Um, Nick, you are at Holyrood Distillery, and Alex, you're with um, Atom Brands, who has boutique whisky company as a client. Um, so how did how did that come about? If you both always really liked whisky, do you have quite an early memory of whisky, or is it just something you're kind of interested in? Um, I. <laughs> I guess I think I'll start because I, I think I might have dragged you into 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 this world. Right? 100%. Yeah, I'm, um, very, I'm very early in my in my whiskey journey, um, but yeah, grateful and and really lucky to be in the space I am with Boutique um, right now. So yeah, you go. For for me, I I started working in a whiskey bar, New Zealand's first whiskey bar called Whiskey, um, back in two thousand and one and got a passion for the stories and and the, I didn't understand the liquid I was too young I was working with these bartenders who'd been in London and they knew everything I thought so um as I got into my whiskey journey I ended up working for Diageo in Australia uh, and then it just went on steroids and I was I I still have a dream of moving home one day and building a distillery in New Zealand, making making whiskey where Alex and I are from out on the coast. And Alex and I, we want to do that together with our other two brothers back home as well. Um, but Diageo moved me to Scotland in 2007. And it was it was crazy because I, I, I had a, a kind of a role in operations and then I turned up and got chucked the keys to a car and told, you're, you're back in sales. And I went, okay, cool. Well, well, I live in Edinburgh. Where am I supposed to go? And they're like, 
you're going to be looking after a town called Dundee. And I was like, well, where's that? And, and, and they went, you've also got Forfa and a Broth. And I was like, okay, cool. I just put me in the right direction. Like, you can imagine me turning up with this accent going, how's it going? And <laughs> where's your single malt selection? And <laughs> it was just absolutely, it was a lot of fun. It was a good cultural exchange. I mean, I didn't know what a blue pub was, right? And I walked in there with a Guinness kit and tried to put up all these all these Guinness Guinness things and got short short shrift out of there pretty fast. But um, it's just been from there. The career's always been whiskey. And then Alex and I were living together in London. And he came into Atom when I was there um, to to head up all of our events because we were doing a lot of whiskey work all over the world with boutiquing. Um, and then you know there wasn't a room for enough, enough room for both of us and. I took on the gig at Holyrood at the start of this year. Nice. Uh, so you're so if you if and when you do go to New Zealand and set up your distillery, is there any specific Scottish whiskey distillery that you would be basing it on, or are you just going to go completely on your own sort of path? And um, I I think yeah, oh, it's a great question. Um, I think in terms of like production technique and focus, it's definitely going to be single malt and 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 based on traditional Scottish stills um not going to try and reinvent distillation but um there will definitely be quite a kiwi mindset to how we set about making that liquid um yeah, there's there's a there's there's a lot of really interesting things about new zealand you know our peats are very very different to what you find in scotland we don't have highlands you know uh, we've got these big tussock fields in the south island with most of the north island was underwater like isla and i'm fascinated to see what kind of of, of peats that we would get out for a heavily peated style um, and then you know, we've also got a lot of wine world back home right and I, i'm very keen to explore wine yeasts and that kind of bringing an idea of uh, yearly change into into whiskey making, allowing a whiskey to be variable from year to year in the same way that you allow a wine vintage to be that way. But yeah, that's that's kind of the, thing, the thinking. That sounds good. It'll be interesting because I'm assuming you guys won't have the same sort of restrictions that the Scottish Whiskey Association puts on here. So you could probably be a bit more innovative than than you maybe could be here. Yeah, we can we can be a, we can be a little bit looser, but we've got a burgeoning whiskey community back home, which. Has, has been done a really good job in setting up its own trade uh, rules. There's no legis, there's not that much tight legislation in New Zealand, but um, they're also holding themselves accountable to some of the same quality standards that Scotch holds itself to, and, and also bourbon, um, and you know, stopping things like um, adding oak chips to casks to get extra flavour and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, I think I think there is some wisdom in, in sticking to the quality standards that Scotch has set, but then being able to play a little bit broader is is, is going to be fun. Um, and Alex, are you back doing events and things now that the restrictions have all lifted? Is there anything coming up that um, with the Batiki Whiskey Company that we should be looking out for? Yeah, so um, just today, actually, uh, we're doing a full takeover with Milroy's and Spitterfields. So um, boutique style takeover with um, with the launch of the Home Home Nation series um, of bottlings. So um, a lot of really good stuff in there from um, Sam and Dave. And then um, we will be um, at the whiskey show at the beginning of October. So um, doing much the same um, and just really pushing um, and getting behind the, the Home Nations release. 
Uh, home Nation, so is that, this is a stupid question, but I take it that's Home Nation's release, really so a, a whiskey for each Home Nation, is that right? Um, so Home Nation as in the, the UK, so... Um, Scotland, Northern Ireland, yeah. England and Wales. Wales, yeah, So for we sure, should look so. out for the Scottish one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah so from whiskey to gin um, Nick Holyrood is about literally just about to launch their first gin um, and it's whiskey inspired so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah absolutely I mean we, we're a year out from our whiskey becoming three years old and being able to release and you know, one of the things which shocked me when I first took on the job was I walking around the, the site and we've we've got a still there that was there for making gin that just wasn't being used. And um, I really struggle with distilleries that put out gins, especially whiskey distilleries, because there is there is a view. I, I I look at it as a bit of a well, why? What are you what are you trying to say? And so the fact that we had one, I was like, well, we we, we better use it for something and. We're starting to use it now for lots of kind of pilot and R&D testing. Um, the, the ops crew used the gin still, bit of the still, and was running uh, grey neutral spirit against peats the other day, like they're pretending peat was a botanical. So there's all sorts of shenanigans happening on that still now. But for the gin that we've released, it, it really had to talk about Holyrood as a whiskey maker. And what we're trying to do at Holyrood is make sure that we put Edinburgh back on the whiskey-making map. It never really was there. No one no one looks back at the golden times of Edinburgh distilling. Edinburgh was always a great brewing city. So what we've taken as our job is to have a mindset that allows us to explore as many avenues as we can in creating flavour that we can build new building blocks that Scotch whiskey can be made from. So we're, we're working with different yeasts, different specialty malts. Um, we did a collaboration with Berry Brothers where we did champagne yeast, border yeast, burgundy yeast, and all of those are just us looking to get more information from which we can grow and learn. Now that kind of, I hate the word innovation, but that really kind of exploring mindset, you know, how do you tell that in, in a gin? How, how do you do that when gin is so creative and innovative all the time? And how do we do that in a way that talks about us properly as a producer? So, you know, we just ripped all the botanicals out. We just, let's just do juniper. And what can you do with juniper when you've only got juniper to work with was the question. And, and we were, by doing that, we're trying to simplify the gin recipe to a point where we could focus on whiskey, whiskey flavor elements, things like mouthfeel, um, things like layer and texture. Those aren't part of a botanical recipe, so um, that's the idea. We, you know, and, and we had the the kids down at the visitor center are having a bit of fun, the brand home, because you know they're tricking people and saying, you know, name our recipe, and we're hearing people say, oh, cardamom, and it's got orange spice in it, da da da, and we're like, no, it's just juniper. But when we add beeswax to it to give it that texture, and we add sea salt to it to give it a really smooth length and all of those flavours of juniper open up. Um, and that then again leans into our thinking as, as a distillery inspired by our brewing heritage. We almost look at juniper now like we look as, as how brewers use hops. You know, hops can change. 
just depending on how you use that one thing. So, um, yeah, that's a lot about height of arrows, but yeah, we're, I mean, it's, it's awesome. We've got export orders in for Australia and, and, and Germany and, um, you know, Master of Malt where, where Alex is and Whiskey Exchange and Royal Mile and hard to find, like people are picking it up. And at, at first it's a scary conversation. They're like, oh yeah, another gin. And you're like, I'll just send you a bottle. <laughs> let's see what you think so yeah and it must be it, it will be quite different now because there's so many different flavored gins and like you say different botanicals and all the botanicals telling a story of the place but to actually just focus on junipers is quite clever i think because that's what it always was and it's kind of gone so far from that now that i think bringing it back will, will be an interesting to taste it yeah reeling it back is i think it just it just means uh, it makes me feel very comfortable as a producer that we're doing this with the right mindset. You know, if we if we were to put in like a like a, a flavored gin, I, I couldn't I couldn't stand next to our whiskies and say we were doing the right thing by our making mm-hmm. philosophies. So, um, and back to whiskey, um, it's obviously in the last few years just become absolutely massive and new distilleries opening and, and ghost distilleries getting opened back up again. Um, you must have seen it from, you know, the start of your career to where you are now. You must have seen a lot of change. And Alex, you've just come into it. So what are your thoughts on like the current whiskey boom as it is just now? When I first moved to Edinburgh in 2007 uh, and at Staff Drinks at Voodoo, I was the only one ordering a whiskey for my my staffies, right? Everyone else was into mezcal and rum and no one cared at all about the spirits that were being made by Scotland. And in that time, we've had so many brilliant new distilleries open, like 07, what was that, Kilhoman was back then. And, and now we've got, got a brilliant array of small distillers who are up against a massive challenge to stand out from the legacy and heritage distilling houses, which have been around and set the tone for what Scotch single malt whiskey is about. And I think that's that in itself creates a lot of energy and excitement. And I think that energy and excitement and that drive to make something which is a little bit, I'm not saying more is wrong, but just drives the category a little bit further means that we have to push ourselves further in our thinking. And I think that's really energizing because we're starting to work as new world whiskey producers are working now, right? Like it was only, only gee, 14 years ago that we started launching Yamazaki in Europe when I was at Morrison Vermore. And now in that time, Japanese whiskey has become something that isn't a gimmick and people are quite happy to drink it and they don't need a tasting note or a sampling session to get them over the line. They're like, cool, Japanese whiskey is cool. And, and, you know, there are all these new work, these, these whiskey markets where whiskey has been imported for so long, who are bringing their own voice to making whiskey. You know, the, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Germans, you know, the small distillers in America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And all it's doing is adding more richness to the story. So, you know, it's, it's awesome to see what's happening right now. No, and I think it um, like just to add that add to that from like someone new to whiskey, like whiskey is really intimidating, like um, for a lot of people. But I think um, now it's being made a lot easier and more approachable um, to come into to come into whiskey to to find something that um, bridges the gap um, and and makes it makes it easier for for people to to find find something for them in whiskey as well. So just a little bit less intimidating. 
Yeah, it definitely seems less of like an old man's drink and more of a, you know, you can have fun with cocktails and you can sort you can add water and things without anybody sort of turning their nose up these days. So you can make it as, you know, diluted as you like to drink it, to try it. And yeah, I think it's, it's a good time. So speaking of whiskey, again, um, at the end of the podcast, we have a, a section called Desert Island Drams. Um, so a question for both of you. If you could only take three whiskies onto a desert island, what would they be and why? <laughs> 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 uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some thinking time, bro. Um, it, it would it would definitely be Bunnahaven. Bunnahaven, anything, but if, if it had to be one, it'd be Bunna Twelve. Uh, me and Al, as we're leaving Isla on the weekend, we we st- the last stop was picking up a fresh batch of Bunna because we've <laughs> we've drunk it out of house and home, and just because it's yummy, it's so yummy. That salty fruit and everything balanced and. Uh, one night I actually I accidentally drank a whole bottle of Buna with mum back home in New Zealand and, and we barely didn't make it up the stairs. So there's lots of fun family memories for me with Buna. Um, and then for my other two drams, it would be um, Hakushu 12 from from up in Japan, just the apple note in there just always makes my, my heart stop. I get really, really excited by it. And then uh, Lagavulin 16, and, and I'm going back to Isla, but that was the first whiskey that um, I ordered as a sample bottle when I got my first job in Diageo in Scotland, and they set, accidentally sent me a case. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it became a daily dram, and that case disappeared really quickly because it's just, just so, so delicious. So there, there's my three. Yeah, Buna Buna Twelve, as you just saw, um, picked that up before we left the island, and it doesn't last very long once once it's open. So um, let's see see how long. I think we've got dinner on Friday, so it'll be crap, <laughs> and there'll be sweet memories uh, made uh, around the bottle. Um, I'm always drawn to the Nika Days. I think the, the first time I tried that um, was at our flat together. Um, in Hackney and it's just so easy and, and delicious you know nice nice and light oh so much pressure I, I, I'm not sure what my my third would be um, I'd have to say um, our Aerolite Lindsay from Character of Isla that it just just makes me smile when I when I think about it and um, all the all the funny times with all the funny people that I've I've had with it I had a last bonfire night because we were in lockdown. They did a, you're probably involved, a, like bonfire stories and it was on YouTube and Charles McLean was doing like a reading. It was the most relaxing thing ever. <laughs> Having a drink of that <laughs> and listening to him and there was like a fire on the YouTube channel. I was like, God, you could just go to sleep. Anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, another uh, sort of whiskey related question, which you might need a couple of minutes to think about. Um, if you could share a quake with anyone, dead or alive, who would you share a quake with? COVID, obviously COVID out the window, <laughs> which means you can share a quake with someone <laughs> rather than <laughs> now these days. <laughs> um, I, this this is going to sound ridiculous, but I would choose uh, John Bon Jovi for my share a quake. I just... <laughs> when, when I'm drinking whiskey like that, I get a belief that I can be a brilliant karaoke singer and, and most of his, his anthems are my go-to songs to mangle people's ears with. 
I'd just love to speak to someone from that that era of 80s pop culture and have a chat and ask all the questions and, and see what that, that time was like. Nice. And Alex? Yeah, I, I guess, like, n- not Bon Jovi <laughs> for me, but <laughs> I, I know my vocal limits. <laughs> but um, I guess you're just always drawn to, like, what rock star would you want to sit down with and, and have a drink with? So, um, yeah, f- for me, like, sort of who comes to mind is, like, Freddie Mercury. It's like, what oh, wild, wild stories... That could you sit and, and share a quake with that even though the movie came out and it gave you a bit of an insight, but just imagine the stuff that he had seen and done in his time. So that that'd be for me. Uh, and finally, the last the last part of the podcast is a quick fire round, and it's five questions. So I'm going to, and it's about food. So I'll split them between both of you, if that's all right. The the, the five questions. So. I'll start with you, Alex. If you just tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I say, whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Hamburgers. And Nick, comfort food for me is... Dumplings. And Alex, my favourite childhood dessert is... Uh, Apple crumble. And Nick, your food heaven is... Uh, Mince and cheese pies from home. (laughs) And Alex, my food hell is... Peas. (laughs) <laughs> that's so true that, and I'm sure Nick's going to tell you <laughs> oh, wait, so when we were little we weren't allowed to get down from the table until we finished our dinner and I'm sure you, you know I, I just think mum liked causing some, some psychological trauma because <laughs> she had serving peas and as soon as peas were on the table I knew that I wasn't leaving the table until I'd watched Alex hide them, swallow them with water, spit them out, get you <laughs> started crying, boogers coming out of his nose. And mince and cheese pies, that sounds like something we'd have here though. Is it, what no. is it? It's, it's like, a, um, it is a little bit like your pies, but it's it was short crust, but a little bit bigger. And yeah, I mean, it, it's proper hangover food, but you know, whenever, when we went home, when we used to go home, uh, there was a mince and cheese pie shop at the airport and we'd stop and get a pie there before leaving. And now you have to go to the service station, which is an eight minute drive from the airport to get the first one. But yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Nice. Well, um, thank you very much. Hopefully, I was going to say hopefully you guys can get home soon. Have you, has it been a while because of COVID? We were, we were lucky enough because of COVID to, to get home to help mum care for, for dad who has Parkinson's over um, the Christmas just been. So um, really lucky to, to work in a, in a business um, where we're able to get home for four or five months so and work remotely. So, yeah, it was back there, but then obviously New Zealand's done full 180 compared to the UK now and is in in lockdown and and the Delta variant's just ripping through um, Auckland, which is our hometown. Well, hopefully hopefully things get a bit better soon. And uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, talking to me about your swims and and, yeah, keep in touch with any others you're doing and 
Uh, I'm looking forward to trying the gin. So thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Thanks, Rosalind. You'll have to join us for one of the swims. I know, I know. I was, I really wanted to come to the the Corey Brecken one, but um, I had to go away for work that weekend. And also, I was, I would be that person who would be like, I have, I can't, I don't think I could do it. Like, I could go in the boat. I don't think I could swim it. I'm not that good swimmer. Yeah, you could. You just go put a little bit of training in, and you'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe next year. You take that um, as a confirmation that you signed yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, as long as I can get some training, because honestly, I'm not that good at swimming. I can swim, but I'm not very yeah. strong. I mean, you're, you're in wetsuits, which which helps. You know, it gives you buoyancy so you can stop, and if you get a bit overwrought or tired or whatever, the, you don't have to work to float. You just float like a cork. So that's always helped. That sounds good. That's a good. <laughs> float like a cork. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Nick and Alex. I'm not really sure what I'm letting myself in for agreeing to that swim, so watch this space. Thanks to you for listening too. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Scran is a logical podcast that's hosted and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.